the History Show with Miles Duncan. Good evening. On this week's programme, the artist who left her mark on East German children's literature. She was not really well known in Ireland. Her books hadn't really published in Ireland. The story of Elizabeth Shaw, a beloved children's author, a caricaturist for the GDR regime and a committed communist. She writes at some point, oh, we were all great admirers of Stalin and convinced that everything that came from Moscow could only be good, even if it was sometimes a little confusing. Also, the persecution of Irish speakers under British rule. On the side of the cart, he had his name written in the old Irish script. And he was arrested not under any Irish language legislation, but under the Trade Standards Act. Paragogo Rourke on the laws that curtailed the speaking of the Irish language, a history that stretches all the way back to 1366. The few medieval laws we have that specifically ban Irish in public are primarily based on stopping the English colonisers from going native. Plus, Neve Nikara joins us to preview Explore Your Archive Week. But to begin this evening, Elizabeth Shaw was an Irish artist and illustrator with an extraordinary 20th century life story. Born in Belfast in 1920, Shaw spent most of her adult life living in communist East Germany. She worked as a caricaturist for Neues Deutschland or New Germany, the newspaper of the ruling Socialist Unity Party. She's best known, though, as an author of books for children. Generations of German children have enjoyed the picture books she wrote and illustrated and which remain in print to this day. But Elizabeth Shaw remains virtually unknown here in Ireland. I'm joined by two guests who have researched Shaw's life and work. Dr Sabine Egger is a lecturer in German studies at Mary Immaculate College in Limerick. And I'm also joined by Dr Fergal Lenehan, who's based at the University of Jena in Germany. You're both very welcome indeed to the programme. Sabine, um, tell us how you first became familiar with uh, Shaw's work when you were growing up in the the 1970s through something called The Timid Rabbit. (laughs) Yes, it's, um, I mean, I actually uh, grew up in the west of Germany, in the Rhineland, but um, we had relatives in East Germany. My mother was from there originally and an aunt used to send me children's books as a child And one of these books was um, Der Kleine Angsthase, or The Timid Rabbit, which was published in 1963. And I quite liked it as a picture book as a small child in the early 70s, because it was, you know, the story of a timid, chubby rabbit who overcomes his fear when saving his little friend being eaten by a fox. So a quite simple moral story, but told with a bit of a sense of humour. And also the illustrations were unusual, clear strokes, bright colours, like almost like cartoons. So I quite liked this. And at the same time, these books had a bit of a, an exotic flavour because we received parcels from East Germany on a regular basis from relatives there. And because they couldn't send so many other consumer goods as we did in our parcels to them, it was very often books, drawings, things like this. So quite a lot of my children's books were actually East German children's books. Now, as a child, you probably didn't pay too much attention to the author's name. Elizabeth Shaw wouldn't necessarily have meant anything to you. It wouldn't appear appeared particularly Irish. But you learned more about her later in life when you came across uh, her, her autobiography called Irish Berlin. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wasn't aware of, I didn't pay attention to her name at all or that she was um, an Irish author. And it was much later when I started working in Ireland um, at the University of Limerick at the time in the late 90s, 
And at the time, I um, had an interest, research interest in GDR literature, but I had done my MA in Northern Irish poetry. So I was looking for ways of maybe connecting the two. And at the Center for Irish-German Studies in UL, was thinking about doing something in this area of Irish-German relations in literature, maybe. And then came across when I was in Berlin, this book by this Irish author, Elizabeth Shaw, Leave Through It. And saw that she was actually the author of this book that I remembered from my childhood and was quite surprised and then became curious about her background story and how come she ended up in Berlin and started doing research, um, used it in my lectures to some extent, um, started also lecturing then in children's literature and decided it's quite quite a fascinating topic, um, it, particularly when, when I realised that she was not really well known in Ireland, that her books hadn't really published in Ireland. It is an absolutely fascinating story. She was born in Belfast in 1920. She was the daughter of, of a bank manager. Tell us a little bit about her early life and when she left Ireland first. Yeah, I mean, she was born in 1920. Her father was from Sligo originally, but had moved to Belfast to take over um, the management of one branch of the Ulster Bank in York Street in Belfast. So she grew up in this area, which was, you know, quite a working class area. There was a, a tobacco factory opposite. They lived in this building on top of the bank, middle class background, Church of Ireland background, but kind of witnessing quite a lot of poverty around them. She describes this in her autobiography as being in this fortress of this house. The back windows were barred because of whatever poverty and violence at the time. That she's from quite privileged background also becomes quite clear when she writes about her parents saying, oh, you can, you know, you shouldn't play outside in the streets with these children. You might catch lice or other diseases. Um, at the same time, it seems to have been quite a liberal maybe slightly left-wing household, liberal Church of Ireland with, you know, a belief in education and liberal open-mindedness. I mean, she recounts an anecdote that the family came under pressure to some extent from neighbours or people they knew because they employed a Catholic maid in the house. Um, so they weren't involved in sectarian conflicts. They were rather from an outsider perspective, but at the same time were also affected by this and aware of this to some extent. But she and her siblings led a privileged lifestyle. Mm. And I think then her father retired when she was uh, in er her early teens. And there was some talk of them possibly moving to Dublin, but ultimately they moved to, to Bedford in, in England. And then later on, when she finishes uh, her secondary education, she studies at the Chelsea School of Arts in London. Is that where she becomes a committed communist? Yeah, that's during that time. I mean, they moved to Bedford and she, in her autobiography, describes this as quite provincial, but she has an interest in art and a talent for art. So she moves there and enrolls in this art school. And of course, this is in the late 1930s. You have an international exile community there, fascism, you know, onset of the Second World War. So she's kind of um, introduced in left-wing artist circles, their communist circles, meets one fellow student, Patrick Carpenter, who comes from a working class background in Chelsea, who is kind of a communist and they have a relationship. She develops an interest both from an intellectual point of view, but also through her personal contacts. I mean, when you read her autobiography, this sounds through to some extent. And this increasing 
feeling amongst these young artists of um, having to take sides that this kind of quite liberal removed perspective um, is not enough. You have to be engaged, you know, outbreak of the Spanish Civil War, all this as a context, so to take sides. And uh, she becomes quite interested in communism, um, reads the Communist Manifesto. They watch Sean O'Casey's play, The Star Turns Red, which is first stage um, at the London Unity Theatre in 1940. So she develops an interest in this um, and becomes involved and then also meets as one of these left-wing young artists, her later husband, uh, René Gretz, who is um, originally has a Swiss background, but um, also lives in London and is involved in this art scene at the time. And what brings her yeah. to Berlin after the war? Well, like she and um, René, I mean, they get married in 1944. And in 1946, they moved from London to East Berlin. And not that unusual again in these circles of a lot of um, quite idealistic, you know, young socialists. You have a lot of artists, German artists also, who are in exile in London and elsewhere, who then move back and believe they can participate in building this better Germany, an anti-fascist state, something new. I mean, like, of course, you have much better known names like Bertolt Brecht, Anna Segers, a lot of these communist artists going back and seeing their role as artists, as taking a stance and helping to rebuild a better Germany after this war. So she's part of this kind of thinking. And also then with her husband, they moved to East Berlin, in 1946 and quite immediately are integrated into the art scene there. So are able to travel to international exhibitions in the late 40s already. She gets some freelance work for media, doing caricatures, drawings, and therefore um, become involved quite early on. Mm. And now Fergal, obviously, Sabine's introduction to Elizabeth Shaw comes from a work of children's fiction. Uh, your introduction, entirely different. You've researched the, the propaganda caricatures that she made for Neues Deutschland or New Germany, a newspaper which was the main party organ of the communist regime. So very, very far from timid rabbits. Tell us, tell us about her caricatures. Yes, I suppose I'm more interested in the darker side of Elizabeth Shaw, but I must say I got to know her as well via my children here in Germany because we had some of our books as well. Elizabeth Shaw worked as a caricaturist for Neues Deutschland from 1950 to 1957 and produced very regular um, caricatures which were linked to different articles. Ones which were general illustrations, the caricatures are generally satirical and sort of point fun at some sort of political figure or something like that. Uh, and these were sort of lightly, maybe lightly satirical or were linked to articles which were not really political or not explicitly political. Then there's a whole series of caricatures that she produced, which are basically anti-US, anti-American and anti-West German, and which depict the United States and the West German state basically as the new Nazis and the communists and as warmongers and that sort of thing. So, for example, there was one caricature, a relatively early one that she produced from the 28th of February 1950, which is linked to an article called The USA, The New Home of Fascism, Okay, which is about the movement of Adolf Hitler's house from Braunau in Austria to the United States. 
And in the caricature, uh, Shaw has, has produced an image of Adolf Hitler with his right arm up in a ship sailing into Manhattan. And in Manhattan, he's greeted by a man dressed with a cowboy hat. There's a man dressed with a Ku Klux Klan type figure with, with sort of a pointy hat. And there's another sort of, I suppose, capitalist looking type figure with the stars and stripes. And this is, of course, this is very, very normal type of caricature for East Germany at the time. But I suppose the, the only thing that's different about it is that you have the name of a Belfast woman sort of underneath them. Fergal, when I, I have to admit that I had never heard of Elizabeth Shaw up to a couple of days ago in common with, with most people in Ireland. But the first thing that occurred to me, the first question I asked when I was introduced to Elizabeth Shaw was, did she have a Stasi file? The Stasi being the secret police in East Germany who were incredibly interventionist and almost everybody in Germany seems to have had a Stasi file uh, or either that or they were spying for the Stasi one or the other. Did she have a Stasi file? Were they were they looking out for her? Yes, she did indeed have a Stasi file. That was something that I was also sort of interested in. And I did presume that they would have kept quite a close eye on her, not least because I mean, she travelled regularly. She was a British passport holder and she travelled regularly to Britain and to the West and, and to the United States. And I was able to get access to her Stasi file because she was a public figure. It is interesting. It's quite thin. OK, there's, there's not more than 20 pages in it. And the most substantial part of it is a report written from 1966, which is basically an investigation of her position and the first thing that I that the first thing that I noticed about it was the the basic sort of factual errors that it contains. So, for example, they say that that she was born in Bedford in Ireland. And obviously, Bedford is in Bedfordshire in in Britain, and they even misspelled the word Ireland. So it's obviously it's spelled with one or in in German, Ireland, and it's spelled with with two ors. And the the report is interesting, but it it is basically compiled by the Stasi officials talking with her neighbours, and they basically come to the conclusion that that Elizabeth Shaw is is politically dependable and is a dedicated communist and dedicated to the ideals of the SAD, the East German Communist Party, as is her husband. And they detail, for example, they detail how how wealthy the family is, that they have a six-room apartment in Berlin, which is still very good for Berlin, that they own a car and that they travel regularly. So, they, for example, they talk about the family or about Elizabeth Shaw, at least anyway, going to Britain four times between 1961 and 1966 and traveling to Bulgaria twice on holidays and to the Czechoslovakia with work and to Romania on holidays as well. And, and it, it concludes really in a positive manner. There's also a report on her husband, René Kreitz, from 1970. It is again very, very positive in relation to Elizabeth Shaw. They say that she's politically dependable and that she's dedicated to the ideals of the East German Communist Party. But now, whereas in the earlier reports they had said that, that her husband was also dependable, now they are of the belief that he is actually no longer dependable, that he is against East German cultural politics, largely for aesthetic reasons, and that he's in favour of westernization. And they even, they even cite a comment that he made in a private conversation from 1963 with somebody who would have been um, an unofficial mitarbeiter, an unofficial informant for, for the Stasi. And in 1963, he had said to this person that he couldn't express outwardly his real beliefs about the East German state, basically. And it's also interesting because 1970 also marks a change in the style of, of his sculpture. Until that, he engaged in more of a, a socialist realist type of idiom. And from then on, from 1970 to 1974, he, he changes, actually, changes tact and develops sculptures which are a lot more abstract. 
And the report on René Kratz ends sort of quite chillingly because they talk about people nearby who, who they view as being dependable and possibly sort of who they could engage to sort of look at the family more closely. The report is, it ends with, with a suggestion of a space that could be used for a possible closer observation. And what is interesting is, of course, that a closer observation doesn't seem to have happened because René Kratz died in 1974 from a heart attack. But at this stage, he was definitely seen as, mm. as not being sort of conformist in right. relation to the norms of, of the GDR. Sabine, she must have travelled to, and as did her husband, to East Germany with some sense of, of, of hope. Uh, how did she face then the, the inconvenient truth of Stalinism? Yeah, it's a quite ambivalent picture. If if you, again, look at her autobiography, she writes at some point, oh, we were all great admirers of Stalin and convinced that everything that came from Moscow could only be good, even if it was sometimes a little confusing. What we didn't realize then, even later, was the danger around us, the terror of Stalinism, which by America we survived. That's how she expresses it. It seems that they became, both she and her husband, increasingly disillusioned with the regime in the course of the 1950s. Also, if you think about the workers' uprising in, in 1953 and her husband, who did initially also do some more abstract work, actually being put you know, in a formalist corner by the regime, not kind of adhering to socialist realism in the 50s. And he wasn't really exhibited for a few years in the 50s. It changed then in, later in the 60s again. So in a sense, they both, um, to some extent, also through their wider circle of friends in the art scene, felt somewhat limited. And this kind of, again, comes through when she writes about the building of the wall. She writes um, also somewhat critical, but it's never very obvious criticism or very open criticism. On the one hand, as Fergal said, they were privileged both of them and she in particular with regard to being able to travel so not being affected directly like other East Germans were from um, these these restrictive policies which probably had something also to do with her attitude I mean even at the end like after the fall of the wall I mean she dies in 1992 she publishes her autobiography is published in 1990 and she kind of ends this in a sense with the statement well you might ask, or I might ask myself, why did we stay? Why didn't we go? And she doesn't even give a clear answer to that. It seems to be this in-between. And I think that throughout, she basically seems to have believed in the idea of communism and socialism, have seen aspects of the East German government as also negative, restrictive. For example, she criticizes an artist friend at some point, but that's also in the late 1950s, about not having supported Ernst Janka, who was the chief editor of the Aufbau Verlag, one of the main book publishing companies in East Germany, who is um, removed from his post because of a somewhat critical attitude. And then another friend, Udo Use, not really standing up for him. So she mentioned this as a criticism, but at the same time, doesn't really go in opposition and that is something that kind of is felt throughout the book that she seems to have been overall quite comfortably integrated into this somewhat privileged life as an artist in East Germany. She had her income. She was able to do the work also when she moved on to illustrating and writing children's books from the 60s onwards, winning awards for these, being able to travel and not 
yeah, affected too much or to an extent, because of course you had other um, initially quite enthusiastic supporters of the regime that in the 70s then became quite critical and openly critical, if you think of the Wolf Biermann affair and left East Germany writers. And this didn't happen with her. And it's a little bit difficult to say, okay, was this because of her obviously ongoing basic support of or belief in communism as something good? Or also with regard to being integrated in this what she also felt was an artist community in East Berlin and living a, a kind of life that she basically agreed with. Fergal, I'm also intrigued by the title of her memoir, which doesn't come out until the late 1980s, and it's called Irish Berlin. Uh, this is somebody who was a Belfast Protestant, moved to England at the age of 13, spends the next 13 years of her life living in England and then migrates to Germany. Why does she think of herself as Irish rather than British? That's a good question and an interesting question. And I think I think she does as well. I think she does have a complex identity with, with strong elements of Britishness and Berlinness and, and communism. But, but Irishness is very, very important to her. If you take her memoir at face value, at least anyway, I mean, memoir is sort of a textual recreation of the self. And I would wonder if her embrace of Irishness at that period is also a type of distancing from, from the regime, to be honest, because it is, as you say, it is the late 1980s. She is conscious that changes are coming. And she, in her memoir, at least anyway, she says that she is in favour of these changes. And I, I would wonder if this is also a type of, of distancing, a type of defensive mechanism, actually, to, to be honest. It is interesting. Um, Sabina mentioned there about Wolf Biermann. There is a letter actually from her in the archives, in the Stasi archives, in support of Wolf Biermann, which is, is something that I think has been, been ignored until now. But it would also suggest that there is some kind of reflection taking place at the same time that she mm. is critical, if maybe this criticism isn't really expressed very openly. Sabine, do you have any, uh, in conclusion, any take on her Irishness as opposed to her British? I would agree with Fergal with regard to that she, you know, had strong connections also to Britain, to friends there, to London, when she kind of, you know, travelled. She, she also visited London quite often. But it seems also that in her later years, when she did then travel to Ireland, like in the 1980s particularly, and she travelled around Ireland, she was quite taken by, which seemed to also have been um, memories of her childhood of travelling to Ireland, to the, the south of Ireland from the north on holidays um, by the sea. And that this was something that she quite, you know, felt attached to um, in a way. I mean, obviously, she also had strong memories of her you know, childhood, not just in Belfast, but outside of Belfast with her relatives of her mother in a farming area, which she liked very much. But this sense of Irishness kind of, in a sense, comes through with this kind of connection to the landscape and the culture in her. And it might also be something related to her stage in life, getting older, kind of, you know, this maybe slight sense of nostalgia or reviving childhood memories. Yeah. Well, we've been talking about the life and work of Elizabeth Shaw, the author and illustrator of The Timid Rabbit. And as we've heard a lot more besides, my guests are uh, Dr. Sabine Egger and Dr. Fergal Lenehan. Thank you both very much indeed for joining us on the programme this evening. Thank you. Thank you, love. After the break, Porygo Gorourke joins me to talk about the British laws that targeted Irish speakers over the centuries. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. Welcome back. 
We turn now to the history of the Irish language, and specifically the numerous ways the speaking of Irish was discouraged and curtailed over the centuries. I'm joined now by historian and author Dr. Parigo O'Rourke, who has researched this topic and uncovered the stories of individuals who were persecuted for using Irish. Porig, the, uh, the first English laws that forbid the speaking of Irish, they go back as far as the 1360s. Tell me about the Statutes of Kilkenny. Yeah, 1366, the Statutes of Kilkenny banned a number of basically cultural expressions. And primarily, it's interesting, this was the English uh, king trying to ban English colonists in Ireland from partaking in Irish culture. So one of the things they banned was the sport of hurling, that uh, English colonists in Ireland or the, the Normans, these old Norman families, couldn't engage in hurling. But Article 3 specifically forbade English colonists in Ireland from speaking the Irish language or from doing business with the native Irish in Gaelic. So that was the earliest law that we have on record which bans Irish. It was followed up by Henry VIII in the 1500s with uh, the 1537 Statute of Ireland and that act basically prohibited the use of the Irish language in the Irish Parliament. Now again, who was sitting in the Irish Parliament? It was largely people of English stock. And then in the 1540s, there was a further act passed which banned the speaking of Irish in areas then under English rules. You're talking about the banning of Irish really in the Pale and in Dublin. So the first, the few medieval laws we have that specifically ban Irish in public are primarily based on stopping the English colonisers from going native. And we know even from the Irish language phrase, that these people were more, more Irish, Irish than the Irish themselves. themselves that certain, yeah. Yeah, certain Norman families like the Fitzgeralds in, in Limerick and the Fitzmaurices in Kerry actually very much integrated with the Irish and adopted Irish customs. But if we shoot up to the modern era, there is only one, the Irish language was never officially illegal on the street, in commerce, in shops or anything like that. There was only one place where it was illegal to speak Irish and that was in the courts. A law was brought in in 1737 called the Administration of Justice Language Act Ireland. And that forbade the speaking of Irish within the courtroom or the completion of legal documentation in Irish. And it could infer a fine of £20 or contempt of court. Now, that law, similar laws were also brought in at the same time for the speaking of Welsh. That has since been repealed in the 1960s. For the speaking of Scots Gaelic in Scottish courts, again, that's been repealed. But interestingly, the Administration of Justice Ireland Act is actually still in force in Northern Ireland today. And this is part of the debate that's currently in the North about the need for an Irish Language Act and to remove this piece of antiquated legislation. Now, as far as I know, the only person who was ever convicted of it was actually funny enough a judge. It was the Honourable Macdonough Mahoney of Cahar Savine, still a Gaeltochtary in Kerry, and he had completed his court documentation in English, but had signed his name, just his signature, in Gaelic. And for that, he was dismissed from the bar and, you know, his job as a, a judge stopped just for signing his name, Oskelga. Uh, now, there was never anything, as you say, in modern statutes banning Irish on the streets, except in that instance of the 1737 Act. But you do get prosecutions for the use of Irish. Talk to me about two individuals, one with the very Irish name of uh, Neil McGillivrija and then somebody with a very un-Gaelic name of Claude Chauvin. What happened to those two gentlemen? 
Well, I would compare the legal situation then to something we saw in Britain a few weeks ago or last month when during the ascension of King Charles to the throne in England, people were arrested or were questioned by the police for holding up signs saying, not my king and, and you know, anti-monarchy signs. Now, there is no laissez-majesté law which makes criticism of the monarchy illegal in England. There is in Thailand and other monarchies, but people were arrested then not for the crime of criticising the monarch, but for a public disturbance or for a breach of the Public Order Act. And that basically is the loophole that was used to prosecute Irish speakers in the early 20th century because there was no, no official law making Irish illegal outside of a courtroom. So if we start with Neil McGillivrida, Neil McGillivrida was a poet, a farmer, songwriter and a weaver in, uh, he was from Faymore in Donegal, so Gaeltacht area. And on the 11th of March 1905, he was arrested at Dunamore Fair by the RIC. Now, he had wheeled a, a small cart into town with his poetry books and his weaving on it. And on the side of the cart, he had his name written in the Clo Gaelic, the old Irish script. And he was arrested by the RIC, not under any Irish language legislation, but under the Trade Standards Act. And he was prosecuted because the name on his cart was said to be not legible. Now, he was defended by a newly minted uh, barrister at the time, a man called Patrick Pierce, who later became famous as a schoolteacher and uh, a revolutionary. And it was Pierce's one and only case at the bar. And Pierce argued to the judge that because it was a Gaeltacht area, because very few people there could speak, let alone read English, that having the sign in Irish actually made it more legible than the English version would have been, and that the Trades and Standards Act didn't specify which language it had to be legible in. Nonetheless, uh, Pierce lost. I think it was quite a good defence myself, but Pierce lost the uh, the court case and the judge found against McGillivrida and fined him for breaching the act. And this ruling gave rise to a headline in on Clive Solis, the um, Gaelic League's newspaper, which was Irish is a foreign language, no different to Yiddish. And that in itself is quite interesting because uh, there were actually members of the Jewish community in Dublin who were learning Irish at the time, Michael Noyek in particular, some of whom actually attended Pierce's uh, first Gael school, St. Endas, when it came about. You could expect somebody like Niall Michaela Vrija being arrested for his use of the Irish language, but Claude Chauvin? Yes, Claude Chauvin was an English uh, linguist. He was a professor of linguistics in Oxford. I believe his family were um, Belgian originally. And he spoke half a dozen languages. And one of them that he was quite interested in was the Irish language. So he, in typical Gaelic League fashion, he came to Cork, to the Muskery Gaeltacht in Cork, and he was dressed in the style of the Gaelic League at the time in a saffron kilt and fly played and was going around speaking Irish to people, interviewing people, learning the local dialect of, of, of Gaelan or Irish in that area. And he was spotted by an RIC constable who questioned him. And Claude Chauvas, a uh, French or Belgian sounding name, but an Englishman, replied to him in Irish. And he was arrested under the defence of the Realm Act. This happened in, in 1916, just before the Rising. And initially, there was an attempt to accuse him of being a German spy, because, of course, naturally, an Englishman of Belgian extraction speaking Irish, that would be typical of <laughs> a German spy. Um, but he was fined £5. He refused to pay it, and he was actually imprisoned. So even before the War of Independence period, 
there was kind of this low-level harassment of Irish speakers, not for speaking Irish itself, but for finding loopholes in the law whereby they could be victimised. Now, arrests increase, as you would expect, during the War of Independence. And uh, one of the people who got into a spot of bother was uh, one Charles Burgess. Tell me about that. Yes, Charles Burgess, better known to us today as Cahill Brua. Cahill Brua, of course, a veteran of the 1916 Rising and a very enthusiastic Gaelic leaguer. He was arrested on the 4th of January 1919 in his constituency of Waterford. He had just been elected, of course, MP for Waterford and had been down there addressing political meetings. And as he returned on the train through Thurless railway station, he was questioned by an Irish RIC constable. Again, there's no black and tans, no very few Englishmen in the RIC at this stage. But a constable, Sean Barrett, asked Cahill Brua for his name. And he said, uh, my name is Cahill Brua. And the constable Barrett replied, quote, unless you give me your name in plain English, I must detain you. So he basically wanted, he knew who this guy was. He wanted the name Charles Burgess. But because Brewer insisted on giving his name in Irish, he actually arrested him. Now, Brewer was never charged. He was held for a number of hours and then released. But it's basically a, a low level of, of harassment. And it's interesting, in, in, in fairness, that you did have English members of parliament who raised this and other issues in the House of Commons. I'm thinking of uh, Captain William Benn, MP, who I think was a, a Liberal and uh, a veteran of the, the Great War. He raised in Parliament the fact that uh, nine people had been arrested in Dublin for the crime of speaking Irish and basically said, what is the purpose of that sort of thing? You know, this is ridiculous. It's making us enemies in Ireland. And one of the people who was arrested was actually Margaret Kyo. She was um, the only member of Cumann killed during the War of Independence. She died later during a munitions accident. But it just shows that ordinary members of the Gaelic League, of Cumann Sinn Féin supporters and just civilians going about their business were being prosecuted for using the Irish language, though not under any one specific act. And one of those who was threatened during the War of Independence was a future Governor-General of the Irish Free State, Don Labuchala. Yes, Don Labuchala at the time would have been very prominent in the Gaelic League and would have been the Sinn Féin TD for Kildare. Like Neil McGill of Rida, he had actually been prosecuted prior to the Rising for having a cart with Irish language written on it, a trading cart. But his pub and grocery shop in Maynooth had the name Obuchala up over the door and it was raided by the British Army and the, the RIC. Now, Obuchala himself wasn't there at the time, but his barman was, was pulled out when he refused to take down the name and the signage in Irish and a loaded revolver was put to his head. And while that was going on, the assembled British soldiers and RIC men ripped down the sign smashed the windows of the pub and then daubed graffiti on the premises, God Save the King, and then the initials B and T, obviously standing for Black and Tans. And this wasn't an isolated incident. Um, a pub that's still trading today in Barna in the, the Galway, uh, Gaeltoth and Connemara, Donnelly's, or Tach Odonela, as they say, the family there were threatened by the British Army and told to remove the Irish language signage over their door. And when they refused, the British Army returned in November of 1920 and actually destroyed the pub using explosives. There is examples of it happening in Killarney, again, not a Gaeltacht area, but um, Gleeson's newsagents was raided by the British Army. The Gleeson sisters who ran it actually barricaded themselves inside, but after a standoff lasting several hours, they were removed and the businesses were basically thrashed and 
boarded up. And again, the graffiti B and T for black and tans was painted up. And even on Tig Gwelach, a shop that's still there in Cahar Savine, still a Gaeltacht area today, that was actually burnt to the ground again because the owners refused to take down the Irish language signage. And there was at least one person killed for using Irish. Yes, that would be Sean O'Brien or Sean O'Brien in English, who was, he was a member of Mallow Urban District Council. Now, he would have been associated with Sinn Féin, but really he was prominent as a member of the Gaelic League. And he had been for years campaigning to get businesses in Mallow to put up their shop fronts in Irish to, you know, give a discount to people who would come in and try and do their business in Irish and really to encourage the speaking of the Irish language locally. Now, in March of 1921, there had been an attack on an RIC patrol in the town by the IRA. Sean O'Brien was not himself a member of the IRA, though probably would have been a, a supporter. But what happened was that night, uh, two members of the Black and Tans called to his home. They knocked on the door. And when he came down from the apartment upstairs to answer the door, they threw hand grenades through the skylight, the window over the door, and then fired shots through the door, killing him. Now, let's talk a little bit about the Irish education system. The formal education system, the national education system, begins in 1831. By the end of the 19th century, Conan Nagoelga has managed to affect, I think, change in the attitude towards the Irish language in Irish schools. But tell us about those intervening years between the 1830s and the 1890s. Well, the current education system we have now, or the, the system of national schools, was actually set up in the 1831 under something called the Stanley Letter, and that was an agreement between the Chief Secretary for Ireland, Edward Stanley, and Daniel O'Connell. Daniel O'Connell himself, for all the merits he has in terms of being anti-slavery and Catholic emancipation and stuff, was not a fan of the Irish language and said that he could witness its passing without, without a sigh. And it's interesting that when these national schools are first set up in Ireland under British rule from 1831 until 1878, the teaching and the speaking of Irish was actually banned in these schools. Now, it changes in the 1870s, but even subjects like Latin and French were far more commonly taught. And we have to remember as well that these schools were being run by the Catholic Church. Like today, over 90% of, of our schools in the south of Ireland have religious patronage. And the Catholic Church at the time, pre-independence, was very much opposed to the Irish language. And for example, there was a system in schools called the, the Tally Stick or Oscailga and Bata Score. And what that was, was every time a child was found speaking Irish, they would have a, a stick on a, a string placed around their neck and the teacher would mark it with their penknife. So if a child spoke Irish five times during the day, there would be five marks on the bottom score or tally stick. And at the end of the day, they would get five lashes of the cane from the teacher. So that was an attempt basically to kill off the Irish language through the, the education system. And this wasn't something that was restricted to Ireland. For example, in Wales, you had something similar called the Welsh knot. And that was a large flat piece of wood like a breadboard with the letters WN on it that would be hung around the neck on a piece of string of any child caught speaking Welsh. And that almost was used to teach young Welsh children to become informers because if Miles Dungan was caught speaking Welsh in the morning, his job was to get rid of the board. And if he found Padraig O'Rourke speaking Welsh, then he would pass the board on to me and I would pass it on to someone else. And whatever child was found with the board at the end of the evening, they got the lashes for everyone. 
And even in Scotland, there was even a far grimmer version of this recorded by the historian Peter Burrisford Ellis, that an actual human skull put on a string was hung around the neck of children in the uh, Outer Hebrides who were caught speaking Gaelic. Is all of this more significant, do you think, in the 19th century than the opposition of people like O'Connell, even though O'Connell around the hearth, around the dinner table, the family spoke spoke Irish. But as far as he was concerned, the language of politics was, was English. Was that more important? And then obviously with the effects of the famine more important than what was going on in the education system when it came to the decline of the Irish language? Well, I think, and it's something you hear of talking to, to people in Gaeltacht areas where sometimes parents or grandparents themselves made a conscious decision that in times of, let's say, famine or economic strife, that our children are going to have to emigrate to go to America or to go to Britain. We need them to speak English and made a conscious decision not to speak Irish to them. But even after the famine and in better economic times, that system continued through, through the, the education system. And as we've seen, even when Irish was becoming somewhat popular amongst people who hadn't previously spoken it in, let's say, in urban areas in Dublin, people were being prosecuted for speaking it. So I think through the law, through the school system and through the courts, there was a conscious effort to suppress the Irish, even though there was never a language on the modern statute book that forbade people from speaking Irish on the street. My guest is Dr. Porygog O'Rourke. Porig, many thanks for joining us and sharing that research into the uh, persecution of Irish speakers under British rule. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. It's Explore Your Archive Week and events are taking place nationwide to highlight the richness and diversity of archives all over Ireland. There's information online at the Archives and Records Association website, araireland.ie. I'm joined now by archivist Niamh Nikara. Niamh, explain to us what the campaign's all about. I suppose when people think about archives, they think about the National Archives. They have an idea perhaps that archivists are a little bit like Harry Potter and the, you know, the dusty under the stairs kind of hidden away part of the library. And Explore Archives, one part of that is kind of busting that myth and getting the message out that the profession is actually quite cutting edge. And another part of that campaign is getting the word out that there are archives in institutions all over the country and they're for everybody. It would be very rare that an archive would be closed off. It might be closed off, for example, because it's a corporate archive and it's private assets. Or it might be, for example, a 30-year rule that specific records can't be released yet. Or, or it could belong GDP. to the Land Commission, but don't get me started we on will that. Not, uh, yeah, we, we will park that particular car. But there are, <laughs> so there are, essentially archives are records. They're just records that took place and were created in the past. And they cover everything. And so I came into archives myself from the world of music. So there are music archives, there are film archives, there are archives that relate to every possible thing you can think of. Every possible thing you do during the day, there is an archive for it. And I suppose county council archives would be something that uh, people could most associate with around the country in their own counties. Local authorities would be a, a major source for people to access. And of course, I suppose the message is that anyone, you, you don't have to have a history background to have access to an archive or to want to access an archive. A lot of people access archives because of the subject matter. So if you're an architect, for example, you might want to come into the Irish Architectural Archive. Which, which is, is a fabulous archive. Fabulous oh, archive beautiful. and a fabulous mm. building and a yes, fabulous, a fabulous uh, 
use and, and, and modernisation of a building. That's one example. Guinness have an archive. It's one of the best archives in the country. Uh, we see a lot of that material in the front facing part of Guinness in the museum. But think of all those fantastic ads. They're all there in an archive. Um, there are recipes for beer going back hundreds of years and employees, for example, who would have worked for Guinness, they would be there. So whether it's local archives or subject specific archives, they can be a great source for people trying to trace family history, for example. Or I'll talk to you about some of the events that are taking place, but I want to turn to Ambassador Gillis. <laughs> Ambassador Gillis better known in uh, this parish as Elizabeth Gillis, our researcher. What? When did you become an ambassador? I'm the incoming ambassador. She is. She becomes the, well, you are, you are the ambassador as of the 24th. So it's very new. You're wearing it very well. You don't so have a chain or anything She like doesn't that, have no? a chain. Unfortunately, no. <laughs> no, just a long your, list of archives. Are, explain what your duties are as ambassador. Well, I suppose to promote the archives, because I myself, through my work as an historian, I use the archives. And as a historian in residence for South Dublin County Council, I do a lot of outreach work, especially with schools. And it's encouraging kids to use primary sources, which are found in your local libraries, your local archives, and not to be afraid of them. Not to be afraid of archives. The archivists are brilliant and you can just find, you know, just gems of gold. And they're brilliant. You know, you can, in my case, looking at military archives online, the stuff is so much digitised and you just find that little piece of puzzle that you're looking for. You've been staring for years and then you find it and you just go, oh my God, there it is. So I just want people to experience that as well. It's exciting. And the archivists are there to help you. They are experts in their field and they know where the information is. So go, don't be afraid of them. They're there for everyone to use. You're very lucky that uh, David McCullough is not presenting this programme because he has ambassadors for his evening meal, as I'm sure you all know. (laughs) Um, Okay, and finally, any of the events. Give me an idea of the events that are taking place over the the week. Okay, so the week itself is a focus week, just to draw people's attention to the fact that this is an ongoing campaign. But there are events happening all over the country. So, for example, in Galway, we have of the Galway County Council Archives, they are sharing a new publication on the George Chambers collection. So George Chambers was this English gentleman tourist that used to uh, spend his holidays over a nine year period in the 1920s, 1930s, going around visiting various parts of Ireland, in particular the islands. And he took loads of photographs and this photographic exhibition is now available, but also there's a publication coming out that will link up his photographs with essays by archivists in the local counties. So like he was in the Iron Island, he was in the Blasket Islands, Skelligs, uh, Aaron Moore in Donegal. He was in Wicklow and at Glendalock. He was down in Bantry. He, he travelled a lot and that's a really nice insight. Also in Galway, in the University of Galway, as it's now known, and I'm still getting used to that name, mm, uh, Pan Pan Theatre Archive is being launched. And of course, that joins uh, so many other theatre archives that are now currently in Galway, such as The Gate and The Thai Verk and The Druid and The Lyric. We have Roscommon Library, which was originally, so the county library was originally an infirmary as part of this week. They are, they are launching the digitization of the patient registers for the infirmary from 1857 to 1901. Mead County Library have a talk just looking at rural district councils. Prony up in Belfast have a series of events encouraging people to come in and, and learn how to use an archive and how to research. And the ITMA, the Irish Tradition Music Archive, which is very close to my heart, they have a series of events which include making 
the Keol Journal available, which is out of publications. That's been digitised. Um, Matt Malloy from the Chieftains will be interviewed and be giving a chat. And the Cullinan Archive, which is a dance archive, will be discussed by Stephanie Markham, who's actually processing it at the moment. So there's there's events happening all over the country. And then a lot of institutions that may not have events themselves, whether online or in person, they will also be taking part in a social media campaign. So every day there's a different theme. Some are fun, some are more serious. And institutions from all over Ireland will be sharing items from their collection to match those themes. So you can find everything on our website, which is ourireland.ie. And you can find us on social media at Our Ireland on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. So that's it in a nutshell. OK, well, that's Explore Your Archives Week. Dia, thank you very much indeed You're for coming in and talking to us and Ambassador. Gillis, thank you very much for the honour and the privilege of, of having you aboard and having you in to talk about Explore Your Archives Week as well. That's all we've got time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Harry Buckless and Ruth Kennington on sound and our researcher Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.